you are Locked On Browns, your daily Cleveland Browns podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Good evening, everybody. Episode 119 of Locked On Browns. I'm your host, Jeff Lloyd, on Twitter, at Jeff underscore LJ underscore Lloyd. Please, guys, follow the Locked On Browns Twitter account. Like I've said, I've made it a follow follow for account. I you know I want to talk about this show, which you guys want to talk about. I want the guests you guys want. So please, by all means, follow off that account. We'll give you the follow back, DM, send suggestions, anything you guys want. You know, like I've said a million times, I want the show to be your show. Before we get into everything, I do want to uh, wish my best and condolences to the family of former Ohio State Buckeye Terry Glenn. Uh, just terrible news at uh, just the young age of 43 years old, passed away in a car accident. Uh, you know, obviously Terry did some fantastic things out there in Columbus while he was with the Buckeye. Pretty solid NFL career, you know, uh, for the time that he had. Uh, just terrible. I, actually, when I went back to look up everything on him today, I even forgot about the one-year stint that he had in Green Bay. But just, you know, terrible, terrible news. Uh, wish the best to his family. And, you know, nobody likes to see anything like that, especially when you're a couple days away from a holiday. So all my best to the Terry Glenn and the Glenn family. Uh, you know, everybody's, you know, kind of, you know, Breaking a little bread, you know, feels a little so, you know, everybody's kind of with you on this one. Uh, here we are, 0-10 and lost again. Uh, I brought back Pete Smith. Uh, Pete killed it Friday night for us. Um, you know, I wanted to bring him back here for the game recap today. Uh, we both really thought that this mass- matchup was a terrible one for the Browns. I think this game pretty much went, I mean, if you were to almost kind of write a script about how it would go, I think this is the way it went. Uh, Cleveland was going to struggle mightily offensively. The defense would hang in Jacksonville, which they've done to this point. Is you know they've you know hung around long enough. You know, I mean, offense done enough offense to over you know to combat how great the defense is for Jacksonville, and that's why you know record wise they are where they're at. Uh, without any further ado, Pete, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. But uh, you know, let's you know, get into Sunday a little bit here. Um. So. I felt like I've seen that game before because I have. Uh, <laughs> last year, Deshaun Kaiser and Notre Dame playing Stanford, uh, where he threw two costly interceptions that led to either 10 or 14 Stanford points. They lost 17-14. I mean, that was essentially what happened. I, I mean, I didn't expect Kaiser to play particularly well uh, for all the reasons we've sort of laid out. I was, frankly, stunned. At, that he didn't throw more interceptions, just given the matchups. I was impressed with Corey Coleman back off injury. Uh, I, it was it was just a bad bad situation. Like Spencer Drango, isn't built to block in Gakway, and you saw, you you saw it. I mean, Drango's not a speedy guy. He's more of a tough guy, and you know you saw a guy just get blown off the ball a couple times, and for whatever reason. They were running like long developing shotgun, and it was just like asking to get get your quarterback killed, which is what happened. Yeah, and, and that's even the thing of it. Uh, and you know, and everybody's harped on this, uh, the lack of usage of a Duke Johnson yesterday. And you know, look, you could have done you know even your shotgun quick stuff. You could have done that if you featured Duke Johnson more. I the six touches. It's at this point, it's just it just gets worse. Every week, you know, why did you guys look so good against Detroit offensively? Because well, you featured, you know, what was your playmakers? And, you know, you had Corey back and looked the six for 80 is fantastic. I thought he looked pretty sharp. 
And even the, it looked like there was a little rust. So to put up six for 80 against this Jacksonville secondary, Antonio Brown had the best game this year at 75 yards against them. So, you know, that's a great thing going forward, you know, you, with Corey alone. It still gives some promise here for the last six games going further. But it was just tough. Uh, obviously, you know, Deshaun, you know, the last thing you can do is be inaccurate and be slow with your timing against a defense like Jacksonville's. Those things showed up tremendously large yesterday, and that's how you ended up. But even the thing that kind of stings all the more there, though, is is if he could have somehow, as poorly as he looked, rallied and got him at least a, you know, a field goal with a try for the onside kick. You know, the time wasn't really working out, but something to look positive there at the end. It could have kind of covered up for what was a pretty much craptastic day. But, you know, just fell short on fourth down. I, the stuff that stands out is is Duke Johnson. It's it's in Joku. It, it's if you were to just the most basic thing you were to ask somebody who just knows a little bit about football is if you were to break it down and say who are the guys we sort of have to stop or who are, or if you're from the Browns' point of view who needs to get the ball in order for us to win and you then come back to it and Joku doesn't play very much when he does I mean he, he got the one really nice catch. But I think that was his only target. Duke had six touches. They really didn't ex- try to exploit Jacksonville's weaknesses, which is the perimeter and the run game. They've been a pretty miserable run defense until they got Marcel Darius, and he's in the middle, so run anywhere else. Uh, the thing that sort of stands out to me the most is there's one zone play they ran with Crowell, which for whatever reason they keep doing. And if he just cut it to the outside, there was nobody there, and he'd still be running and he missed it, and that's sort of been his season in a nutshell. Um, I'm not surprised by what I saw, but certainly frustrating opportunities were there, and it's another game they could have won and, and potentially been a really nice rallying cry, especially with with everything that happened on defense. I mean, that was uh, certainly a hard-fought battle between the Jaguars' running game and the Browns' defense, but that side of the ball was just fun to watch. It's a shame about Ogba's foot. Uh, but other than that, I mean, they just get after it, and it was just nonstop uh, making plays, giving Blake Bortles a nightmare scenario, and then just it was just two tough units going up against each other, and a lot of carries for Leonard Fournette. Yeah, no, and, you know, obviously, you know, and the rookie Leonard Fournette showed well, and you know, I almost want to give him a little bit of a pat on the back because I mean, he kind of looked bad, you know, with uh, you know, the cold isn't fun, this, that, and the other thing, you know, he's struggling with the ankle injury. But, you know, did enough, you know, you know, almost like the uh, the Herman Boone line, you know, it's Novocaine, you know, you work it long enough, it's going to work. Um, Miles Garrett actually looked really good yesterday. Um, I, I, I want you to talk a little bit here about Miles. Now, the loss of Agba, who essentially may have been the defensive MVP of this team to this point, um, it's I, I want to see Garrett here kind of step up and, you know, you know, appreciate the fact that Agba carried a lot of the load that he missed up until this point. Uh, so Miles Garrett, I mean, if I was to sum him up, it would be what what he did to Cam Robinson on that when he long armed him. It looked like he just threw a three hundred twenty pound kid out of the way. It was impressive. He just does so much that makes plays for everybody else. Like he, you know, the the difference between him with the defense when when he was out for those first four four games and then out with the concussion versus what he what that defense looks like with him on it it's it's almost like he puts like like he's their soul and it just it just changes everything everybody looks better and then Ogba 
has been a terrific run defender. Uh, all he's basically been doing is just knocking whoever's blocking him into the backfield, and then he struggles to sort of get off if he's trying to pass rush. Uh, but you can't run to his side. He just shuts it down, and when he went out, um, I thought Nassib had some nice plays. I thought Orchard had maybe his best day I've seen this year. Uh, but but you still see where losing Ogba, not having him, still gives opportunities for the opponent. And and certainly that's that's a loss, but now now they have an opportunity. I think Orchard, in, in a lot of ways, these six games coming up are really going to be his – his, what what may end up being his last gasp to really show if he's going to be part of this team uh, for the future. Whereas Nassib, um, I think he's coming on and he's going to get better, but I'd really like to see him sort of – you get into situations yesterday like where he knocks, he knocks a lineman back, what should have been a tackle for loss for about five yards behind the line of scrimmage, and he couldn't finish it. And that's sort of been what Nassib has been this year. Is it's just it's just a matter of not finishing those opportunities. But Ogba, even when he doesn't get to the quarterback and he's not stopping the run, I think he blocks two or three passes. He's just always around, and just that type of disruptor. That it's a shame that for the entire 2017 season you're going to have three and a half games when Garrett and Ogba are on this field at the same time, and what those two can do together. Um, it's certainly something to look forward to. Is those two look like they could be, you know, that next great group of defensive ends uh not unlike the new york giants and not unlike the kansas city chiefs yeah and i think uh you know a lot of people everyone wants to talk about you know what you need to do with these 12 picks um you know and and i keep thinking that you know you're going to have to ask add a third to this mix to the pass rushing look it's you everyone oh well i have a great tool there are so many injuries in the game today even with business whether it's cornerback or whatever a wide receiver you got to go almost three strong at those positions because you've got to factor in the fact that these guys are going to miss games. So if you can just add a third to that, and Agba, obviously we know we can kick down inside in nickel and dime situations. So the games that you have them, but you know that's got to be something that's got to be looked at, whether it's the free agency or draft. Uh, I want to get a little bit to the linebacking core. I mean, these guys were all over the field yesterday. I mean, monster numbers. I think between three linebackers, it was damn near 40 total tackles, which shows you these guys. But uh, James Burgess, I like James Burgess, highly active yesterday. So give me some thoughts there. Um, I, I think James Burgess really fits what, what the Browns want to do. He seems to really thrive running downhill. Uh, I think he, you know, it's he's not Jamie Collins. And, I, and, and no one's going to pretend he's Jamie Collins. But in terms of just being a fill-in guy who they got for an undrafted free agent, uh, I know Greg Williams loves him. He just seems to do stuff. Uh, if he's he just he's a guy who fills a gap pretty well, and then when he comes on the blitz, he he at least becomes somebody you have to deal with. Uh, I don't think he's a guy who creates too many of his own plays, but you need guys that just make plays that are there for them, and I think James Burgess does that. Uh, I think he's just you know you need you need guys who are just activity, especially at the linebacker level. Uh, you just want guys who are who are going to mix it up, be physical, be tough, and, and Burgess does all those things. Nothing he does really like wows you, but you know, at the, after a while, you just sort of look back and it adds up, and you're like, wow, this kid, this kid had a pretty good game, even though there's no one moment where you're like, man, this kid really does something special. Yeah, exactly, and you know, I think he, like he's a nice complimentary guy, and I, I think 
that's one of the things I like most about this Browns D is, it, it, you know, obviously it's strong, you know, the defensive line at the top, but there's there's a lot of rotational guys here, you know, guys who, you know, won't ever see second contracts, but that's what you're looking for when you're building a young D. You know, you want everyone to feel they're a part, and everyone seems to be getting their reps. Uh, you are listening to Locked On Browns, episode 119. Obviously, it's Bengals week. Uh, keep James Rapian in mind. Locked On Bengals uh, podcast. James has he covered anything you need over that way. So please, guys, go ahead and check all that out. Now we are going to get to hmm, the press conference today. <laughs> Pete, I got to tell you, it was, I mean, for me, it was just, it was a comedy of errors. It was a, a guy who realizes that his days are numbered. The ship is sinking. And, you know, like I mentioned to you before we started this, you know, the cool kids won't sit, let me sit with them at lunch. But Pete, I mean, your timeline today was absolute fire. So go ahead. Uh, Hughes presser today. My God. What I would say first is if you haven't actually listened to it, listen to it. because It's it, a must listen. I don't normally recommend pushing, you know, oh, check out a press conference. But this was, this is something you got to hear. So the, the first thing is to keep in mind that there were reports that the Haslam's had a meeting with like 12 players. And I believe Hugh was in this meeting. Uh, but that's not entirely clear. And they came out of the meeting and they asked players, you know, what was said. And Joel Batonio apparently answered and said, we're going to stick with the plan. Uh, and then Hugh Jackson comes out and uh, Jeff Shudell, who I normally don't think does a very good job, uh, picked up on the – somebody asked uh, Hugh, Hugh Jackson if he believed the plan was working. And Shudell wouldn't let him get away from it because – because basically Hugh Jackson said something to the effect of, well, I'm not really here to comment on that. And you're just sort of like, wait, what? This idea, because every other time, you know, Hugh has done this before where he's been really noncommittal to what the front office is doing, where Sashi Brown, the one, and to be fair, Sashi's only had one presser, uh, where Sashi was extremely supportive of Hugh Jackson. You, you saw somebody look like a real politician uh, and somebody who was really selling it. And then Hugh gets on this and and says, you know, I'm not, you know, that's it. This isn't for me to judge. And he gets pressed on it, and he goes, well, that's for you guys to judge, to the <laughs> press. And you're just sitting there going, wait, what? And then he sort of, I think he realized what he was doing. Like I think he sort of caught on that he he screwed up, and all of a sudden he sort of shifted gears. And he's like, I'm the head coach. I'm here to coach like trying to shift the blame to the front office, realizing he catches himself and then goes, uh, I'm responsible for the product on the field. We're one in 25. Like he, he blamed everybody else and then gave you sort of all the ammunition you needed to be able to go. Yeah, you are one in 25. You are this bad. And you've said over and over again, including in this press conference earlier that you have the players with the talent. They just aren't making the plays, which paints a big fat target on your back. It's, it was just hard to sort of see all this. And then on top of that, with the same timing as the players coming out and going, we're going to stick – the ownership says we're going to stick with the plan. And Hugh Jackson goes, what plan? And you you can't help but come away with the, the, the thought of, well, that's probably because Hugh isn't part of the plan. And that at some point, you know, presumably Black Monday – that Hugh's going to be gone and we're going to be talking about a different head coach. It's hard not to come away with that. And if that wasn't the immediate guaranteed thought process now, if your ownership, 
you've basically been thrown under the bus by your coach, and now you're you, you have to be sitting there as the Haslam's going. We're trying to help you, help us help you, and he can't get out of his own way. And, and this may have been a big step for the front office today, because I think the front office, you know, and it, it, it's always seemed that it's you know maybe it was you know Hugh kind of was closer to the ownership than the front office. But but today it was you know if anything if you're the ownership it's like all right the guy we're closer with and you know and and almost made a move for AJ McCarron which was mind boggling to give up the draft volume and draft capital that you have he basically ratted on himself and so I mean if anything like the front office right now you know yeah they all left at five because that's what they do they're all at the bar right now they're cracking some drinks and going look. We're getting it done, and we've tried to tell everybody we're getting it done, and he basically just told everybody we're getting it done. And the best part is he told everybody that he's 1-25, in 25. and now he's lost, you know, whether you want to put the number at three or four games that they lost this year because of a Sunday product, which is nothing the front office can do about that. They're putting him in line for that. And, you know, you had Corey Coleman back this week, and as ugly as it was, you had a chance there at the end. It was just mind-boggling. I mean, it was – I mean, like, I, I picture a guy walking on banana peels, and it was almost to the point where he probably would have just been better to get up and walk away because you just kept either digging the hole sideways than putting it on him, and then he even dug his own hole d- deeper. But, you know, I never want to push press conferences, but this is one you certainly got to listen to today because it was just – I mean, I've heard some doozies from being here in New York with the Giants and, you know, the Herm Edwards, uh, you know, you play to win and things I've heard. But this one, this one was up there. Uh, One other thing I want to get to here, Pete, everybody just, you know, whether Peyton Manning is going to be a future part of this organization or not, nobody honestly has a true answer right now. Why is it that everyone just assumes Peyton Manning is going to walk into this door and this is all of a sudden going to be the San Francisco 49ers of the 80s to early 90s. And this franchise is going to hum like the finest of automobiles. Cleveland doesn't want to admit it, but they have a they have a bit of a problem with – they have a little bit of a Napoleon complex. And they don't like being thought of as, as not being able to sort of get – you know, celebrity type guy, people that matter. Like they, they want that buzz, that bump, whatever you want to call it, that New York can get or L.A. can get by hiring anybody. And for whatever reason, this inferiority complex gets them to a point where they want they, – they are just drawn to celebrities being attached to their team. Uh, and and uh, this to me goes right back to Mike Holmgren. People love the idea of Mike Holmgren being the guy. Oh, he won Super Bowl. He won Super Bowl. He was at another one. He's had some personnel say, oh, this guy's extremely credible. And he was. He was all of those things. And then he got here. He really didn't like what the job entailed. And it was just sort of a mess. Peyton Manning has never done anything like this. Uh, This is would be asking some and if his name wasn't Peyton Manning no one would care and they'd laugh at the it basically be like you and I saying well you know I've got I've done this much work on the draft you should hire me to be the you know run the organization and people laugh at you but that's essentially what they're saying with Peyton Manning the only difference is 
they know his name and they they know he was a great quarterback, which has nothing to do with being a great executive. You've got, you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, the list goes on and on of guys who can't do this type of job. But the other big fat problem with with Peyton Manning right now is Papa John's. And Papa John's has gone and done this horrible, you know, this horrible thing where, you know, the CEO got in trouble, obviously, for complaining about the NFL and basically their handling of of, of, of the protests and everything like that. And, and, you know, the way they handled it got, you know, uh, Nazi groups and white supremacists and all these alt-right and whatever else basically said, Papa John's is our pizza place. And you've got all this going on, and Peyton Manning owns uh, at least 21 restaurants in, in Colorado. And like I've said many a time, the clever entrepreneur that he is, when did he buy him? Yeah, right before <laughs> marijuana was legalized in, in Colorado. And, and, and for that, you give him a ton of credit. But, but the optical nightmare of Peyton Manning being hired as, the let's say, the, the president of operations – and the press conference, it would be fair. I'll go beyond fair. It would be necessary to ask the question: Do you support what your what the Papa John CEO is saying? You own restaurants. It's not like he's just on the commercials. He is a part of the business that has taken that twelve percent stock hit. He is, owns restaurants where this guy says stuff. It represents him, and now you've got what is that majority? Uh, African-American minority league and you've got these people saying this, this becomes an optical nightmare and you're trying to now sell tickets with this, it just becomes an enormous distraction for everything involved. So even if you love Peyton Manning and you think he'll be the greatest uh, executive in history based on whatever evidence you want to try to come up with, this has to get sorted out first. Whether he sells it, whether he comes out with some big strong statement that's never going to happen or whatever, but you cannot have this happen and then say, here's the keys to my organization. It is a bad look, especially with everything Colin Kaepernick. You cannot do it. And that's also the thing. I mean, because Peyton Manning toes such a company line and, you know, we always heard the stories of, you know, oh, sends guys the handwritten letter. The, you know, other than, you know, a, you know, a tiff on a sideline with teammates, the only time he ever spoke bad about somebody was his liquored up kicker from Canada during the Pro Bowl. I mean, this is going to require, you know, basically damning that company and damning his existence with it. And here's a guy, you know, and look, Peyton likes his money. These Manning people, they like their money. This is that would cost him money on that end. And then you're also talking about him taking on a role where, look, you got to make a decision at 745 a.m. on Tuesday morning. Because you're about to lose a practice squad player, are, 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 is that the part of the job you want? And like you talked about, you know, you or I, you know, you know, being, you know, brought in in scouting consultants because we, we follow the draft. Well, did you see this kid from D three, you know, you know, Polkatot State, who you know had three thousand yards this year? There's, you know, do you realize, you know, how big a job is that you're jumping into? And the thing I wonder is, you know, why isn't he going the TV route? And you look at Tony Romo and how he's excelled with it. You know Tony Romo is putting in 10, 12 hours a week of you know game tape watching, being prepped to go on Sunday. Is Peyton saying, oh, well, yeah, maybe maybe that's a little difficult. Maybe that's a lot of work. Well, what in the world do you think running an entire organization entails? 
Well, you, you, there's a couple things there. First, his, he's got his dad as a role model for, for getting in TV and how, how light the work is there. You know, he, he can look at dad and knows exactly how much he has to do to go be, uh, you know, in this CBS broadcast covering the SEC where you are never wrong. You always look like the smartest guy out there. You get paid a ton of money and everybody's going to continue saying you're the greatest thing ever. You, you look at John Gruden's career uh, as a coach and there's a lot that wasn't very good about it. But because he's in TV, he looks like the greatest thing out there. Uh, that's a great situation. And so many people think, well, you know, Peyton Manning will come and be on John Elway. Forgetting that John Elway put six years in with the Colorado Crush, a minor league team he owned, sort of learning the business. And then you look at where John Elway is right now. He can't pick a quarterback. And he basically just declared war on his roster by calling them all soft. And you hear reports that the players are pissed. So – there, there's things there that scare me with Peyton Manning, namely, and, and El- Elway or anyone like that, is namely the fact that they will meddle and get into things, they'll you know, over their skis and all that stuff, where you sort of get really worried that this becomes, he becomes bigger than the team, and Elway can has a little bit of leeway because obviously he's, you know, the greatest quarterback in Broncos history and and one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, but he has a little bit of leeway in that he's John Elway in Colorado. Peyton Manning can be Peyton Manning for a little while, but after, you know, there's a point where that act is going to get very old, and you're already going to see this with the Broncos fans who are already a little unhappy with what's going on there, whether they want to actually pin it on John Elway or not. They see Trevor Simeon, Paxton Lynch, and Brock Osweiler and are going, wait a minute, this is our quarterback situation? Well, exactly. I mean, you have, you know, essentially three baseball cap wearers. And it's just – it's crazy that everybody gets so excited about it for the big name. And, you know, and you look at a lot of these front office guys and you see who these guys are. And they have the history of working their way up the chain to get into these positions by doing front office work. It wasn't the fact that they threw for 5,000 yards a season. It, it just dumbfounded – like, I mean, there are certain players who translate well to other aspects of the game afterwards, whether it's coaching, whether it's front office position. For me – and this is what, you know, Derek Jeter now running the Miami Marlins. I don't think these guys understand what they're getting into. And, in you know, and you have all the money in the world and, you know, you think you want this type of thing. But, you know, I, maybe because they were such good ball players, they took all these people for granted. And I can understand that. But just to think you're going to walk into this and it's just going to – everything's going to go perfectly for you. I mean, you screw up one trade, you set a brand franchise back. You, you know, full pot, a couple of draft picks, you set a franchise back tremendously. I mean, I, I don't understand why these guys even want the headache of this because there's so much rotting on it that I don't think they truly comprehend. Well, and, and the guys who are good at it, let's take Ozzie Newsom. Ozzie Newsom put in the work. Like, he did the hard, grinding process to get to where he wa- got, got to as GM now. The guys who succeed ground it out. Gary Kubiak, I mean, he, ne- he never did anything as a quarterback other than back up John Elway, but he became a successful offensive coordinator and ultimately a head coach because he was a grinder. Jason Garrett, he's a grinder, and people don't think Garrett's a very good coach. I mean, it, it, you don't, it doesn't work where you just hand these people, in, in some cases, the quoted at $100 million and saying, save my franchise – and and what my worry with anyone with Peyton Manning is if you don't know what you're doing uh, with say you know scouting or whatever he's going to be inclined to try to get into things where he can sort of put 
put in calories and put in energy where he does feel like he knows something, and that may be meddling in jobs that are already covered and he shouldn't be involved with, as that tends to be what happens in that situation. And then it becomes a bigger problem. If 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 Peyton Manning wants to be this wants to be somebody who runs an organization, he's got to put in the put in the groundwork. And I don't know if he's willing to do that. I think it's very difficult to 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 come in and just be like, here, I'm going to fix this, give me all this money, and then you have nothing to base it on. No, I agree. And, uh, you know, if, if you guys want an example, you Cleveland fans, look up the Knicks and look what went down with Phil Jackson. They just assumed he was a guy that could do a role bigger than the role he had and excelled at, and, you know, the franchise was set back the entire time was here. Phil don't really care, got his money. This is the same thing would happen if you're going to go for the ultra-flare name and somebody with zero experience of doing that type of job. Uh, we got two listener questions here for you tonight, Pete. Um, what is the ideal role for a guy like Duke Johnson? I think Duke Johnson's in the exact role he should be. It's just he shouldn't get six touches. It should be 16 touches where you give him like, you know, you say seven, eight carries out of the backfield and then you throw them, you know, seven, eight balls in various spots, whether that's in that slot position. By the way, that was a hell of a play call. I'll give Hugh Jackson credit for that. That was that was pretty. That was a nice, nice setup. But those are the things he can do. He can work in the screen game. He can work in those short yardage passing plays. And he's not taking on running into the interior of the defensive line. Look, I love Duke Johnson, but it never fails. He comes up a play a game where he's shaken up. Uh, and has to come off the sideline, and he, he always comes back in. But you're not going to say, "Here, we're going to give you 25 carries. Let's see what you can do with it." You're always going to want him to be a weapon that's part of the offense, not the feature guy. So, in it, what you'd like to see, you know, whether it's Saquon Barkley or Darius Geis, for example, and then Duke Johnson is what he's doing, just in a bigger role. That's the ideal situation. You have your feature back that's going to take the load of carries, and then Duke Johnson just becomes a nightmare weapon where you line him up anywhere, which is what you know Reggie Bush ultimately became and where he was at his best. That's sort of what I would I would say Duke Johnson should be doing. He's very good at a lot of things, but he's just not built to take you know a full on. He's not built to do what Leonard Fournette did yesterday. He's just not. No, I agree there. And if you want a dream scenario, Browns fans, take a look at New Orleans. You want Duke Johnson playing the Alvin Kamara role, find yourself that Mark Ingram type of guy. Maybe it's a Saquon Barkley, maybe it's a Darius Geis, maybe it's another guy, but that's what you're looking for from a backfield. And uh, one other, and this actually came from a bunch of people. Uh, look, as I mean, you agree, I agree, Ryan Burns agrees, Stephen Thomas agrees. It's time, and you guys, you know, I kind of like my triumvirate of longtime Browns fans that I go to, we all agree. Hugh has no business being here any longer. Some fans want a couple names, Pete, for a head coach. What are you thinking? <laughs> well, let's start with the fact that before we, – I can, we can make the case right here that Hugh Jackson should be fired without, have, without talking about actually coaching up a single player. What he's done, undermining the organization, basically calling out his front office in public without actually doing it in public, all those things that he's sort of sliming his way around – He's sort of broken that trust that it's going to be, let's say, you know, the, the ownership makes an insane decision and goes, you know, we're going to stick with you and we're going to get rid of the front office. 
who is going to come in and want to work with this? <laughs> like that, that's just a very you're going to get in that scenario. You're going to get basically a flunky that just does whatever Hugh Jackson wants. You're not going to get a competent front office. It's just bad. And then you get into clock management and some of the fiascos he's had at the end of halves or the end of games is just not understanding how to run the clock and all that stuff. We haven't talked about a single player win loss or anything. And we're already at the point where you can be like, man, this is, this is troublesome. Um, look, coaching, I'm sort of con- conflicted in this. I've heard a name that was thrown out. Uh, the Browns, reportedly, and this is not some secret thing, it's out there, Ben Albright reported it, uh, the Browns have already been looking at coaches. Um, they have had talks with some. They aren't getting into names. Uh, this sort of blew up in, in the in the wake of the Mike Singletary thing, which wasn't for a head coaching job. But they've already been sort of looking. Now, I don't know what that says about the front office, but they've been looking. Now, I hope that says the front office is on board and they're looking. Um, but I have heard... Of a, of a name and, and, a, and a pitch coordinator in that situation that, that I personally would think would be a really good setup. So I can't get into that because I don't, you know, if that goes out, that's one of those things that actually could ruin, ruin the hire before it happens. But that's why I would say it's 90%, a hundred percent. Hugh should be gone. I'll say it's 90%. I'll give 10% leeway that, that somehow, some way there's some insane scenario where he's still here. Uh, but you know, I, I will just say that that anyone who assumes that the Browns can't get somebody good in here, you're wrong. Uh, and it's because of the roster. It's because of all these things that have been built the last two. It's really hard to say I don't want to go coach Cleveland, and then you throw on the tape of Miles Garrett, Emmanuel Ogba, Larry Ogunjobi, Danny Shelton. That's just your defensive line, and go. Well, I'm not interested in this at all. Um, what they've been doing has made this job more attractive. You've got all these young players. And then now and on top of that, if you're a coach, let's say you're an offensive coach, um, you're going to potentially have the top pick of the draft. Uh, you're shot at whatever quarterback you want, another first-round pick, and then three second-round picks. So I, believe me, I, I understand why people would say, how are they going to fire this guy? They're ne- never going to bu- find somebody else. I would say you'd be surprised where, uh, who might be interested in this job and, and how good they could actually make out of this deal. Uh, I, me personally, I mean, I would – if you can't even draw, draw that huge name or whatever, and I'm assuming when you are talking new head coach, he comes with an offensive background? Uh, the one I'm talking about doesn't, but they've actually – they've even had him pitch an offensive coordinator who would bring with him. That was okay. So I, you know, that's, that's, I don't think there's any specific automatic guideline that they'd be going. What, but, but what, what the thing was is Greg Williams, the, the talk of why have, why not make Greg Williams the interim head coach. And I think part of it is because the Browns would really like Greg Williams back as the defensive coordinator. Uh, and if so you, making him in, interim head coach means he is future head coach. I, I Otherwise, think that, you lose him. Yeah, I think that's the problem is if you make them the interim head coach, it becomes a very awkward situation for, one, he's not a real no, – interim head coach is not a good position to be in. It just isn't. Uh, it's not like it's, hey, I'm the interim head coach. We're going to be great. In the NFL, especially college, you can occasionally get away with it. Uh, so if you, if you fire Hugh Jackson, make Greg Williams the interim head coach – it becomes very hard to then go backwards and go back to being the defensive coordinator. And I think they like 
to somehow, and it, it'll be up to Greg Williams, and, and, and you know, he may be so loyal to Hugh, he says, no, I can't do it, I'm going. Now, the problem with that is he's leaving this defense behind that looks pretty damn good, and the other part of that that's going to make it difficult is his son has a job on the staff and Blake Williams, uh, and that may be harder to walk away from than, than he might think it is. Certainly, if Greg gets a job elsewhere, maybe he can get his son another another gig, but I think that's easier said than done and might make it difficult. But So the scenario that was pitched to me as a rumor that, that they'd like to have happen is a head coach with a, with a pitched offensive coordinator. And if they can, Greg Williams is still your defensive coordinator. He probably keeps his staff, and then they just replace basically half the staff and the head coach. Uh, I'm hoping that would include the front office. So it's not continuity, but it is continuity and certainly would make, you know, it, it – as much as like it's an awkward transition to go, you know, fire the head coach, that would be pretty smooth. Now, things are never never tend to go that smoothly anywhere in professional sports. But that's sort of the that would be the ideal scenario, I think, at this point. Yeah, I mean it does make sense. You know, I, I could understand even if at the end of the season, you know, because Greg obviously has a long history, if you made him head coach allowed him to keep his defensive staff. You know, Greg has a wide contact of guys that he's worked over the years. You could maybe find the right guy who looked at what this offense brings. But, you know, ideally, I guess, you know, when you know the defense is this solid, you want to bring in the offensive head coach. Maybe Greg's comfortable where he's at. And you want to keep that. You want to keep that part intact. Uh, Pete, thanks so much. Uh, Guys, uh, after this, look, it is on to the Bengals. Look, this is a winnable game. I... (laughs) This is a winnable game, and here we are again. We'll see how it plays out on Sunday, but we've officially moved on. Uh, be interesting week how we handle the shows with Thanksgiving Thursday. I want to try and do the full slate of shows this week, so we'll see if it works out that way. But episode episode one nineteen of Locked On Browns, Pete Smith. Appreciate you coming back. The fans love you. The listens were up. Thanks so much, bud. Um, always a pleasure. Of course. All right, guys, like I said, uh, we'll get back at it tomorrow. Uh, you know, some Bengals talk, all that good stuff going on. Got a new promotion here. Uh, I'm going to uh, you know, start tweet out tomorrow morning that we can work on as well for the show. But, guys, thanks so much. Everybody have a great night.